0: Congratulations to Anthony, winner of the 2023 Royal Society of Literature Andace Prize for his poetry collection, Heritage Aesthetics, published by Granta. The chair of judges, journalist Samira Ahmed says Anthony's poetry is beautiful, but is not sugarcoat. The arsenic of historical imperial arrogance permeates the Britain he explores in his writing. Yet the joy of his collection comes from his strength, knowledge, maturity, but also from deeply felt love. In this interview of Stories Seldom Told, Anthony talks about his stories of unconscious bias, as a British born, Greek speaking Cypriot, and how he approaches writing poetry. As he says, there are 750,000 words in the English language that he randomly chooses, maybe 16, which means he must trust his subconscious brain. It's only later that he will start to organize what is essentially nonsense and guff into the bigger intellectual subject? This is Stories Seldom Told. I am Smitha Tharoor. Hello. I'd like to introduce Anthony Anaxaguru. Antony is a British born Cypriot poet, fiction writer, essayist, publisher, and poetry educator. His poetry has been published in Poetry. The Poetry Review, Poetry London, New Statesman, Granta and elsewhere. His work has also appeared on BBC Newsnight, BBC Radio 4, ITV, Vice UK Channel 4 and Sky Arts. His second collection, After the Formalities, published with Penned in the Margins, is a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for the 2019 TS Eliot Prize, along with the 2021 Ledbury Munthe Poetry Prize for second collections. In 2022, Anthony founded Propel Magazine, an online literary journal featuring the works of poets yet to publish a first collection, which I think is absolutely marvelous that Anthony is going out to support other people who may not have had the same successes that he has had. Anthony's artistic director of Outspoken, a monthly poetry and music night held at London South Park Centre. So if any of you are London-based, you check that out, and the publisher of Outspoken Press. His most recent poetry collection, Heritage Aesthetics, was published by Granta earlier this month, November 2022. This is what Run Reviewer says of Anthony and his work. One of the most politically engaged poets of our time, Anthony holds the busy intersectionality of history, politics, and ideology in poems that remain fresh and open. The reason I was asking to speak to Anthony and ask him to share is. Uh, uh, you know, stories of unconscious bias with me today is because of exactly these ideas of history and politics and ideology, because Anthony and I have had the pleasure of having a very, very long car journey, as you remember. I think it took almost five hours from London to Bradford, where as one does, we set the world to right and discussed all sorts of things. And I said, Anthony has got to come on my podcast and continue to share these stories. So welcome, Anthony, and thank you so very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Smither. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Yes, so as yes. you know, you know, we're talking stories of unconscious bias. How do you understand that? You know, even before the stories bit comes in. Why do you understand unconscious bias? I don't
1: know. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, when when you sent me the email and you sent me the invitation and I read the term unconscious bias, I thought straight away of obviously interviews, um, which I think is the place where everyone, or kind of like formal settings and meetings where you Encounter someone for the first time. I'm I'm kind of interested in the way in which encounters, first encounters, work, and how we how we decide whether we like someone or whether we don't. You know, like straight off the bat, and usually within like you know, from people that go on first dates to uh, like you say interviews and um, places like that, or even somewhere like the gym is really interesting, particularly as a man going to the gym and then meeting someone who's also training striking up conversation what those interest points become and then the kind of more niche aspects of that which i think is youtube which i'll get onto but all of these things yeah yeah all of these things are what kind of i think about quite a lot and i think they shape the way in which like interpersonal relations how we treat each other and and how we work but my initial thought was how I think affinity bias is the one that I often think about the most. I think it's the most prevalent one out of all the kind of unconscious biases that that have been identified. I think affinity bias is the one where I feel that that is the key. That's the, that's the deal breaker, is that if you can meet someone and you can see something in them that reflect you, be it a principle, be it a belief, be it uh, a way that you would like to be seen. I think that's the one that draws you in. You know, we talk about being charismatic or we talk about being charming. um, And all these things are kind of, some people are very naturally charismatic, which means it's not, you know, they're not learned. It's not trained. But then I also think there's an element of how does that charisma impact and affect us in in different ways, you know? So it's about Uh,
0: principles and values. I think that's what you're saying. And I can't help but go back Uh, and I think I should say this for the listeners sake as well as for ourselves. Here we are talking about meeting somebody for the first time. So I should actually give a little history lesson about the two of us meeting for the first time, which is that we were both speaking at the Bradford Literary Festival. There was a rail strike and somebody else very kindly took a bunch of us, picked us up. There were four of us in the car, excluding uh, our driver and drove us up to Bradford from London, which including a break took almost five hours and during that five hours that's a kind of false false space don't you think because we talked Ooh. and we we ended up being in such a strange place i felt at the end of that yeah. conversation what was that about then in terms of unconscious bias
1: well i think it's interesting cuz a car a carpool is very intense because when you're locked into a a cabin essentially and the the, the car was full um i'd uh, I, I I hadn't really met anyone properly before. I mean, we'd spoken, but we'd never shared five hours together. Um, and we had so never met or spoken space.
0: for that matter. Yeah, you yeah, and yeah, I had never met man. or spoken,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah,. And so to be to kind of be propelled into that, and then my thing is is I get as we said in Nicole, I get quite overwhelmed. I think when everyone talks at the same time, Um, I have like sensory overload and then I usually need to put headphones on because I can't process all the different conversations happening. But I felt that within that car journey, once we started to kind of, because I think you three at the back were kind of jumping all over the houses, you know, it was um, Aisha, you, and who was it? Um, Ramona.
0: Ramona.
1: Ramona. Yeah. And I think Ramona, that's right. And I think that the conversation was jumping and jumping and jumping. And then when we locked in to something Like we were talking about, you know, what what Aisha said, what does success mean? And when you get into those big philosophical questions, you hold the space, like you ground the space in something more substantial. And I think from there, we kind of pushed outwards into exploring and the conversation became more generative. And I think that's kind of what it needed. Otherwise, it would have just been chaos for five hours. Everyone just talking over each other, into each other, (laughs) subjects just moving around, (laughs) you know, so I think, yeah, I think it, like, to answer your question, there was there's an element of performance when it comes to that because no one knows each other and you want to bring your best associate to the table. You know, you want to bring your best representative. So um, that's our unconscious
0: bias, isn't it, Anthony? Would 100%, you yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. What you do is you kind of, you try and make a, you esti- you make a guess, you estimate what someone would like to see. You know, like, and if you're in a room, it's all for, like
0: this, though, it's all very, very instinctive,
1: 100%. And because that, in you're feeling is that unconscious bias is, is already formed, and these uh intuitions are happening at a subconscious level, and you're bringing various parts of you. In other words, like, if you're in a group and someone keeps telling dirty jokes, you know, that you make a decision do you want to partake? Or are you going to miss this one out? Because that's not really your kind of thing. And you usually get the alpha or someone who's quite domineering will steer the conversation out of the dirty jokes into something more wholesome. Or you'll just get that one person who's trying to move it into more a cerebral space who will just become the outlier because the guys just want to sit around talking shit. And I kind of feel that you know it's that kind of – that negotiation happens in a very small, and like you say, you, know, you kind of intuit that.
0: Yeah, I like that. So what, so tell me about you and your stories of unconscious bias then. Could you share a story with us?
1: Um, I think there was, I mean, I don't, I think unconscious bias, obviously it's, it's it's got very negative connotations to it because we use it to our detriment. We use it in a way that doesn't feel kind of robust. But then I feel like you say, because it is instinctive, and because it is unconscious, it's like I think of what Krishnamurti said in in The Awakening of Intelligence, where he talks about this idea of how do you control the unconscious or the subconscious through the conscious mind? Mm-hmm. How, how how does that happen? And so it's a big kind of philosophical kind of quandary, like how do you make, how do you have access to the unconscious mind? And then if you read, you know, articles on unconscious bias, you'll have people that would say you have to become aware of your unconscious biases in order to be fair in positions of adjudication positions of employment wherever it might be and so i kind of feel that my experiences with it have been more projecting where people have projected their biases or their what has made them feel threatened onto me and it is always class and race that are at, and gender that are at the core of these things so for instance the anecdote that i think was very it was formative in how it shaped my career was in 2008 i was working for a a small like a start a tech startup in west london and i was I had a very like menial job i was working spreadsheets for 16 grand a year and just copying and pasting information from one spreadsheet to another and it was a full time job but the, you know the task itself was was very menial um and the CEO was called uh, Andrew. And he, every Friday at the end of the month, we would go out and we would eat and we would have a kind of a lunch with all the all the company. It was about 25 people that worked there. And I remember this one particular month, we went to one of these places in West London and I had Herman Hesse's Steppel, uh, Siddhartha on the, not Steppenwolf, had Siddhartha. And I was reading Siddhartha and I had it on the table because I didn't carry a rucksack. I used to just carry the book on its own and make the commute. And I had it on the table, and whilst everyone was sitting there, he said, it, "He stopped the whole kind of gathering." Anthony, what's what? What's that book you've got next to you? And I said, "Ah, oh, uh, it's just a book I'm reading." And then he, went, "Oh, which one? Hold hold it up. Let let's have a look." So I held it up, and he went, "Hess, you're you're reading Herman Hess." I was like, yeah, yeah, he's one of my favorites. I read Steppenwolf and now I'm reading Siddharth. I'm going to try and read The Glass game. And as I was talking, he just went, whoa, whoa, you, you read Herman Hesse. And I went, yeah, you, you read Herman Hesse. He was like incredulous. And the whole whole table just started laughing, but it was the kind of laughter that they were laughing because of his position as CEO They were laughing along with him at my expense. And it was like, why is someone like you, a working class immigrant kid, reading high culture, high art, high literature? Like, this is big philosophical thinking. How do you have the capacity to read something like that? And I laughed as well. And I I laughed in a way that half of me wanted to just smash his face and the other half wanted to cry. So it it was these two extreme sensations that I felt. But that lesson saved me so much time and there's a line where Ezra Pound the poet Ezra Pound talks about an editor looking at his early work and the editor laughing at him and saying you're wasting your time and Pound recalls he says it saved me going 10 years in the wrong direction because just that as a lesson which is obviously he was projecting onto me. That Those were his unconscious biases that were all coming out. He was revealing so much about himself in trying to intimidate me and undermine my kind of curiosity and my love for literature as someone who technically shouldn't be having access to these books. Because
0: after all, you're doing spreadsheets. So why should you be reading Amon S?
1: Exactly. And I think when that happened, it actually made me want to read more. It made me want to be able to articulate myself. It made me want to retain information from the books that I was reading and bring these things out as like as cultural currency. Bring them out as you know as the ace of spades when I needed to. And so I think that was my first real. Ex- I mean, there's obviously thousands more, but that one was was kind of instrumental. A
0: defining moment, you're saying?
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, know but you're
0: cool. lucky though, aren't you, Anthony? Because I think so many others may not have had the same reaction as you um it could have pushed them further down some kind of hole where, where it where there was difficult to climb out of
1: yeah um, and that that did happen like when i was a kid you know when i was 18 19 i came from a very disparaging place i went to a very competitive school um that was and i was in all the bottom sets which i think is its own kind of like you know that it's its own experience to go to such a a top school in the country where most of the pupils end up going to oxford or cambridge or kings and and you're in all the bottom sets while your peers are all thriving and they're all getting A's and you're getting F's and D's like that, what that does. Whereas if I went to like a school where it felt more balanced, maybe, you know, the hangover from that wouldn't have been so severe, but I think having those inadequacy issues, being an autodidact, coming from a place that is unorthodox, I'm self-taught in many regard, in many respects, um, all that plays into, how we deal with these kind of comments that try to kind of admonish and, you know, and, uh, you know, berate, I I guess would be, that's what it felt. But he was so, he was so threatened by this book as a symbol. And the fact that he couldn't associate that book with someone like me, um, who was just cutting spreadsheets and spoke like a plumber, which is what he always used to say. Uh, And he was like a middle-class white guy, like posh, like blue-eyed, blonde hair, like the typical kind of, you know. Um, but yeah, and maybe he would say he meant it as a joke and I was too sensitive, but, you know, these things are all loaded, however you look at it.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. But then let's come back to you, Anthony, and, you know, because I remember when, we, when, when I asked you about your surname and I said, uh, you know, you're British-born Cypriot, you said, but you also said to me in the car that you are a British-born Greek-speaking Cypriot. Mm. And there is a difference between a Greek Cypriot and a Greek speaking Cypriot. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my work looks at the kind of complexities of the Cypriot identity through a kind of diasporic lens. Um and I tell think Tell us that- a little
0: bit about tell us, a, you know, very brief, if you don't mind, hmm. understanding history lesson about this idea of Cyprus, Cypriots, Greek speaking, Greek Cypriots. What are, what is all this about? Because many of our listeners may not know
1: yeah so so cyprus isn't is an island that is located in in the middle east um or uh, the near east depending on who's doing the kind of uh, who who the cartographer is um but uh <laughs> usually, usually the british um and 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 it for for 2000 years it's been colonized and uh, by many different groups of people including um, the Ottomans, the Venetians, uh, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Moors, um, the British—everyone at some point had a piece of this island. It's been sought after because it's a because of its geographic location, where it sits in the Levant. Um, and what has resulted is, is that the corollary of that is that you have people who are identify as either Greek Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot. And within that, you have other minorities that include Maronites and uh, Armenian Cypriots as well. Um, but the, the, the complexity is in the fact that these kind of prefixes are hangovers from colonialism. Um, the kind of conservative argument would be there is no such thing as a Cypriot. You're either Greek or you're Turkish and you would have come from Greece at some point because you have a Greek surname and you have an affinity to Greece or to Turkey. Whereas the socialist, the more liberal, the more progressive uh, argument would be that the prefix is completely ideological. uh, And it was a way that of using kind of two ethnic groups or ethno linguistic groups as dividing them. Um, And so the reason why I say I'm Greek speaking is because I'm not from Greece. I'm from Cyprus. And Within that kind of rubric of the Cypriot is all the pluralities, all the kind of different groups that have some point settled on the island, migrated off, but still hold perhaps a Greek or a Turkish surname. Um, Also, surnames are not a great indicator in Cyprus because what the Ottomans did is... Because you couldn't convert people to Islam, you couldn't force them. They used to give tax breaks to certain individuals known as the Limbo Bambari, who, if you converted to Islam by changing your name to a Muslim name, you got tax breaks. So, a lot of Cypriots on the island who might have originally been Greek speaking converted or changed their names to Turkish surnames, which they that was 150, 200 years ago. So, they would now have Turkish surnames, but their kind of genetics, you know, if we're going to go with that, yeah, yeah.
0: The DNA or, and stuff is actually Greek, yeah. Yeah. But
1: I'm, then, I, I, yeah. But,
0: sorry, no, but so then in relation to that, because I'm thinking of what the reason I wanted that brief history lesson is to, to, to for, for us, the listeners and myself to understand more about you, Anthony Anik Saguru, because mm. certainly as one of the reviewers said about you, you know, you talk about the intersectionality of history, politics, and ideology in your poems. These are three things that could be seen as very different things that instinctively influence you unconsciously in how you write and perceive the world. So tell us a little bit about, in terms of unconscious bias and stories, what that's about and why is that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I write a lot from the unconscious, which I think when you're writing, know and that that kind of means you get into that free free state free flow state where you're just allowing ideas to kind of fall out of you and you organize those ideas in poetry much later on but the initial stages of I, i guess language making is all unconscious for me um and what's interesting is that when i'm putting down a draft or i'm you know just putting some free verse down I'm interested in what's actually coming out because I don't know what's coming out. And a lot of the time it is this complexity with the Cypriot identity, my relationship to Britain, my relationship as someone who was born in Cyprus to parents who were born, sorry, born in England, but to parents who were born in Cyprus. And they were bought under the British empire. You know, they were yeah. Cyprus gained independence in 1960. Uh, and so I think that all these different things, I'm interested in how they affect how I relate to the world and how I respond, not only to the world, but, I mean, to the people in it, because that is the world. Um, And, you know, all problems are interpersonal. And so I kind of feel that when you start looking at how people see you, and there's a line in one of the poems, you know, we talk so well, license the lexicon of power, like the narcissism of a bullet. And that comes from a comment, again, made by a teacher, whereas someone like me talks so well. Can you say that
0: sentence again? I want us to appreciate that that one line Um, from your poem.
1: What uh, um, you talk so well for your kind license the lexicon of power which is the British kind of lexicon like the narcissism of a bullet that's kind of how he meant it I talk English so well and then I wanted to subvert the idea with, through the simile like the narcissism of a bullet um, and and it was which again links back to, to the British Imperial Project um, and it shows the double standards within that and so I kind of you know, like I I think about all these things, these unconscious biases, but I actually feel that I'm punching up in a lot of my poems coming from marginalized space, coming from a non-English space uh, and how that, a non-white space, a non-English space, but a British space, how that all plays out. Um, So yeah, I think you learn a lot about your unconscious biases through the act of, of art making.
0: I love that, Anthony. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you were able to read out one line of one poem for the listeners to appreciate before they go out and get your books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, to continue, I mean, perhaps you could you could uh, just share another story with us.
1: Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of, of times where I've been. Yeah, um, I'd I, love I, to. Yeah, I'd like, love I, to hear it's, that. It's happened to me, and I think, all right, I think the the the, the most obvious one that happened you know, very, very regularly is when I'm at an event, a poetry event or a reading. And it happened to me, actually, I'm in Edinburgh right now, but I was in Glasgow um, at the university of Glasgow uh, on Monday. And I did a reading in the chapel there with, with the poet, Sophie Collins, who was asking questions about, you know, the book. And <clears throat> she, uh, after the reading, there was a guy who came up to me and he had a little hat on and he wasn't you know, a part of this. He wasn't part of the cohort of students who were there. He was a member of the public, and he was older. And he was, he was like, "Hey, man, like, I really love that." You know, like, I'm, I'm Cypriot too, and I'm, I'm born. I was born in 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 England. I'm a bit older than you. I'm fifty, but you know, and we straight away like the click. What I felt was like, I just wanted to hang out with this guy. Like I, I just and if I thought if I was in an interview, I'd argue that he should get the job. Affinity <laughs> and, and, and bias, yeah, yeah. It's complete. It's completely <laughs> crazy. It's the affinity bias, exactly. Mm, it. And, mm.
0: um,
1: but also the idea of why he came to me was that he felt mirrored. Yes. There was transference in there, in that he felt that he was seeing himself uh, through me as a mouthpiece. And his experiences were being articulated through the poems and that he could, he'd read the book twice. He said, and he had so much, we went for lunch and he had all these questions about things that he picked up from the book and from the poems about his experiences as a British Cypriot, but um, his understanding of colonialism, his parents were quite conservative. You know, they'd always say they were Greek. They're not Cypriot. Uh, they're European. They're not Middle Eastern. Like all these different things would, would come into it. Um and I think that was my unconscious bias, and and it, and it's happened. If you know, you know, as a man, when you, if a woman who is attractive, you feel yourself gravitating towards beauty. Uh, you feel yourself gravitating towards vernacular intelligence. If somebody is quite loquacious, if somebody is verbose, uh, then you, I find myself becoming more animated by them. Like, I like that. I feel myself becoming excited by the fact that somebody thinks and somebody can articulate themselves. So all of these things. But the difference is power. How much power do I have as as an individual? How can my unconscious bias impact their lives, deny them opportunities or offer them opportunities? I have no power in this regard. So my unconscious bias is practically obsolete, it's rendered obsolete. But no, that-
0: but no, no. I was going to say in that instance, mm. when when the Cypriot uh, uh, a gentleman came up and spoke to you, you actually did have power because you were already in a position of authority. You had just been on stage. Mm. He had seen you on stage. And yeah. so there is already, uh, there is Antony, Antony Annex, a poet who has just presented, who has just been out there. And he is just a man in the audience. And therefore yeah. the power dynamic is already there.
1: Oh, 100%. I think, I think the word that I'm more fixated on is, is opportunity. And I can't deny him. It's not like I can deny him any opportunity. I mean, all I can do is just be rude to him and just say, I don't want to talk to you. And that would be it. But in regards to like, could I actually impact, could could I have a detrimental impact on his life? No, I'm not offering him a job, a mortgage. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, authority. I'm not the police. Like I'm not sitting and stopping him because he looks dodgy. He looks suspect Um, like none of these things I can do. And so I kind of feel that it's just, it's obviously there is a power dynamic in that he's come to see me. Yes, But, I don't feel as an individual, I have much power over his life is, I guess what I'm trying to. Sure. No,
0: I get that. And I think there's something else that I just also want to flag up. Certainly your story is that this gentleman came up to you, said he's a Cypriot and you just went like that ping. And there was a connection and that can happen to any of us. Um, from any nationality, you know, it could be that I'm doing the metaphorical interview and somebody who is Indian walks in, and, yeah. and I don't know anything about that individual, and I want to give him the job. And this yeah. is what happens. We, we without realising it, have this unconscious affinity. That's what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's the unconscious affinity that I think is the most prevailing out of all the biases. It's the one that I think happens all the time and it will happen throughout your life. You know, like I think with the more superficial, be they language, be they aesthetic, uh, beauty, intelligence, I think these things fluctuate as we age and you know our relationship to age and time moves. But I think the cultural affinity, the idea of seeing yourself or your religion or your place of birth, you know, your dialect, your vernacular, reflected or mirrored in somebody else is a huge way of kind of bringing two people together. But I think, again, it goes back to the idea, for me, it really is about power. And I think unconscious bias is only detrimental when it's put in, in, in that kind of, uh, in that polarizing power dynamic. Whereas I, you want something from me, how are you going to warm me up? How are you going to charm and manipulate me to give you what you want. And I think that's when it becomes, and you see it in dates, like when people go on dates for the first time, or when people like, you know, we're in the car, you start peacocking, you start showing what you think the other person wants to see. And you're kind of making decisions around that very quickly, very intuitively, while the same person is now rendering very quickly, at a subconscious level, what you are putting forward be that, oh, you speak really well, or oh, you're very clever, or how do you think so fast? Like all these kind of things, mm-hmm. they're compliments, but this is them kind of forging a profile of you in that space.
0: And also learning, I suppose, from each other. The fact that you, you know, I remember you quoting Krishnamurti, which you did recently, and you also did in the car. Yeah. And, and that makes you realize that here is a set guy sitting in the front who's extremely widely read and 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 can tell you about all kinds of things. Yeah. And that, as you correctly said, depending on who the person is, and I'm thinking about myself, excites the listener and says, yeah. oh, that sounds exciting. I want to know more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people might feel slightly on the defensive. Oh, God, Anthony knows too much. I'm going to just keep quiet. Because yeah. I don't want to look like a fool. It could go another way.
1: 100%. So it's, It
0: is very much about trying to, to appreciate and, and fill in the blanks, but within the space mm. of understanding each other.
1: And, and I think a lot of that is to show affinity. Like it is actually to show, like, for instance, so I thought about that afterwards. Like, why did I bring up Krishna? I could have quoted anyone. Like I've, 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 I've read across the board philosophers from all the different continents, all different periods of time, thinkers, uh, sages, gurus, whatever it might be. <laughs> but I mentioned Krishnamurti and I did that unconsciously. And I did that afterwards, I realized when I went up to the hotel, when I was reflecting on five hours of, you know, pontification. <laughs> and I thought, did you do that? Because there was four South Asian people in the car. <laughs> you said Krishnamurti because you wanted to pander to a cultural reference that you knew they would all know. Um, and it's like quoting Gandhi, you know, like it's that <laughs> kind of thing. And I get I, you. I, Yeah, and and that's what, you know, in my head... But
0: but the point you're making, though, which is extremely important for all of us to appreciate, is that you didn't do it deliberately.
1: Yeah. It came
0: entirely instinctively. This is the power of our brain and our minds Mm. and how we do things. So it was all click, click, click. You know who's in the car and you just say something from that vast head of knowledge that you've got and all that you've read. Mm. Yeah. No, I love that. But then, but tell me more, Anthony, you know, in terms of this idea of unconscious biases and so on, you know, you say that when you write, you just get influenced unconsciously and you just kind of put pen to paper or keyboard to to screen, however it is you write. And it just comes. And then it's, then only do you consciously make sense of what you write. Yeah. Then What does that actually mean in terms of managing your unconscious? I don't, I don't get it. Talk to us, explain that to us.
1: I mean, I I think that you get into a, a very kind of associative, you open, you have to find a way to open the tap. And then when you open the tap, you just let it run. And then you turn the tap off and you have the water in the basin. And it's that water that you then use to wash, shave, do whatever you need to do. But that comes later on. So once you have the water, then you... You, then you utilize Figure out it. what you're
0: doing with it, yeah.
1: Exactly. So I but think- no,
0: because I'm, The reason I'm asking is because I'm I'm sure there will be many, many people who, you know, love your writing, love reading you and want to know more. And so I'm wondering what they can learn from that advice. You know, what does that mean by open the tap? I'm not um, a writer, which is perhaps why I'm asking that question.
1: Well, I, I think that, okay. So for me, writing happens in in, in two spaces. Uh, You either write because there's something you want to find out or you write because there's something you want to say. And if it's something I want to say in the past when I've written poems that have, that I know too much about the subject, say, I want to talk about, uh, I think that the UK economy is the way that it is because of 12 years of Tory rule, right? I'm going to put that down. I'm going to make a poem that argues that point. I'm going to try to convince the audience that this is true in however I see truth, and I'm going to try and get to the end of that point. So it's almost like being in a court of law. You have your argument, you have your thesis, and you go in and you have to prove it. When you're working in that space, I feel that I'm in my conscious brain. I feel like I'm in the top part of my head. I get you, right. Whereas if I was to say, why? If I was to ask, why is that? And then not try to answer it, but to find a language that can accommodate the kind of membrane of a question. So to create a poetry that within itself is a question that you are then giving to the reader or the listener to then extract what they need to extract or inhabit. So you either extract or you step in. And so I kind of feel that by working in a place of discovery, you tap into the unconscious mind. And by that means whatever comes out, is enough in other words if i'm going You're to control it yeah if i'm going to free write for half an hour and i write down six daffodils to the end of a table spit out an ostrich feather and <laughs> kick up a cloud that's what i've written i there's 750,000 words in the english language i've chosen those 16 right that in order for that to happen that means my subconscious brain is there. The channel that that's come from, I have to trust it. And then later, I jump into the top part of my head, and I start to organize what is essentially nonsense and guff from things that are working into the bigger intellectual subject.
0: Love it. love it. I think that's great advice. Um, Any last thoughts, Anthony, before we sign out in terms of you know how you manage your own unconscious biases or you prefer to just in terms of writing clearly you don't want to be controlling you want to just be free flowing but what yeah, about and connection that, and talking to people and so on
1: well i think you know that they're, they're two different kind of contexts i think yes in, exactly in,
0: that's why yeah
1: i think in the real world and like i say you know if i'm if i'm in a position where there is power or i uh, say so for instance i have been so the, the poetry equivalent would be the poetry would be if I was to judge a prize and I'm judging a prize. Uh, I'm judging a competition and, you know, several, uh, two, 2,000 poems have been submitted into this competition. Now, when I read these poems, it is all unconscious bias that is happening because what happens is, is I take into that reading my personal taste, my yeah. preference, my experience, my story, um, what I want poetry to do, what I don't want poetry to do, what I think poetry is, what I think poetry isn't. All of these things are taken in. And if I can see my own sensibilities, my own poetics reflected within that, within a poem, I like it. Now, am I liking it because I'm reading the poem on its own terms or am I liking it because I can see myself in the Affinity
0: bias, Riaz said again.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's, that's where I realise that, in order to be a, a very kind of wide, pluralistic reader and not a fixed reader which I, or a conservative reader, you have to be aware of your tastes in poetry, your cultural and aesthetic tastes, and you need to loosen them up and allow yourself to see the piece of art, be it a painting, be it a poem, be it music, on its own terms. What is this thing trying to do and how well does it do it? That's kind of my critical marker for thinking about art, you know, without it saying, yeah, you know, even when I'm curating Outspoken and we sit with the other uh, co-curators and we discuss, we're not always booking the poets or the poems that we love. We are booking poetry that needs to be heard. But then that word need is working very hard in the sentence, like who decides what is needed and what needs
0: to, exactly. So each of us comes and that's brilliant. I think we're going to have to pause there because it's there's so much for the listener to take in. And I suspect after they listen to it once, they're going to rewind it. That's the beauty of a podcast and listen to it all over again because yeah. there's so many different things that you have shared with us under the sort of the banner of stories of unconscious bias, um, which I think they will understand and appreciate to a great degree. So, Anthony, Anthony, Aniksogur, thank you so very much thank for
1: sharing you so much. Your, your, your stories. Experience.
0: No, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. I can't believe we've come to the end of season eight already. Once again, I've had the huge privilege of hearing stories from so many different parts of the world, many that I've never been to Bhutan, Israel, Virginia, the UK, California, Uganda, Kerala, to name a few. Eleven episodes, each of which teach us and encourage us to question our assumptions and beliefs. For example, Tourette's syndrome, what do you think of that? Practicing the Islamic faith, being incarcerated in prison, persevering despite having no father and an alcoholic mother. Please do catch up, listen, share and rate, as we're not going to be starting Season 9 for a few weeks. This is Stories Seldom Told. I am Smitha Tharoor.